Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. If you brought your textbook to class this morning, please uh, join me in the 10th chapter of Hebrews. I want you to notice the contrast in this passage between verse 22 in Hebrews 10, let us draw near, and verse 38, if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him, saith the Lord. But we are not of them that draw back. Draw near, don't draw back. That's the contrast in this passage. Now we're in the application section of the Hebrew letter. He's laid out his doctrine. He's taught us about the priesthood of Christ the superiority of the new covenant. The gospel is greater than the law because it is not a message in prospect, but it's a message in retrospect. That is, it is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that we have good news today. So we're not just living in the shadow, but we're living in the reality. He's laid down those important principles, and now he's applying them to our lives. And the theme from here on to the end of the book is persevere in faith. You saw that in verse 38 that we read, now the just shall live by faith. And he's about to transition into the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which is the great hall of faith in which he shows us the patriarchs and prophets to have been faithful to God all the way to the finish line. And he's citing these great cloud of witnesses for the purpose of encouraging the Hebrews who were teetering and tottering on the brink, that is, the pressure that they were under was causing many of them to question whether their confession of faith in Christ was worth it. And some of them were already falling away. And the apostle then is encouraging them not to draw back, not to shrink away from the service of Christ, but to draw closer. Let us draw near. Get closer to God. I always loved a story Elder Danny Parker told when I was a young boy. I heard him tell this story about when his dad would chasten him. He said, you know, I found that the closer I stayed to my dad when he would chasten me, the less it hurt. (laughs) You know, when I tried to run away, you know, he could get more torque into the paddle, but he said, the closer I got to him, the less it pained me. May I say that's true in our spiritual lives. The closer you and I live to God, my beloved, the less struggle and difficulty we will have. The great solution, in other words, to your life and mine is to stay very close to God. And this passage in Hebrews tells us that one of the ways we stay close to God is by attending public worship regularly. Did you hear verse 25? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Let us draw near. This passage tells us that one of the ways we draw near to the Lord is by assembling with his people, by drawing near with the church in public worship. May I suggest there is no situation or environment in which you and I will ever find ourselves in this world, in which the potential for getting close to God is greater than it is right here this morning. Driving down Interstate 95, sitting on the beach, working at your desk, whatever the situation may be, may I say that you have a greater opportunity to feel God's presence here in the house of God today 
to get close to him than you do at any other point or in any other circumstance during the course of the week. I'm not saying that God cannot manifest his presence to us in our homes or automobiles or our daily activities. Certainly he can and he does, but I dare say that this situation is tailor-made for you to feel that God is near. And how many times have you come to the house of God on Lord's Day morning with your heart sort of cold and your mind confused and you've left saying, it's been so good to be in the house of the Lord. That's been my experience. So let's draw closer, says the writer, not back. And this is his encouragement to them, but you'll notice that there's also a note of warning in this passage. Now, the whole letter to the Hebrews is summarized in the last chapter and the 22nd verse by this expression, suffer this word of exhortation that I have written unto you in few words. You might be interested to know that that word translated exhortation is a double concept. It has a double nuance. It means both encouragement, exhortation means encouragement, but it also means warning. And as you look through Hebrews, you find bunches of encouraging passages. He talks about our high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. How encouraging is that? He talks about the fact that Jesus Christ has once for all redeemed us from our sins. That's an encouraging truth, isn't it? He talks about the fact that he ever lives to make intercession for us, the intercessory ministry of Jesus, that he's praying for us at the Father's right hand at this moment. He talks about the fact that he's sat down over and again in this letter. He says Christ has sat down, which is the posture of rest. He's finished the work. Yes, there are encouragements in this letter to the Hebrews, but there are also numerous warnings For instance, you remember in chapter 2 when he says, Brethren, beware lest you let the things slip that you've heard. Beware that it doesn't slip away from your memory. Don't lose sight of what the Lord has done for you. That's a warning passage. And you'll also remember in the sixth chapter of Hebrews, we have a very serious warning where he says that it's impossible for those that were once enlightened and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the world to come, if they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That is a jaw-dropping, heart-stopping kind of warning. And likewise, we have one of those sobering warning passages here in Hebrews chapter 10, which is just as severe and maybe even a bit more so than the one in Hebrews chapter 6. As he says in verses 25 through 31, that apostasy is a very serious matter. So let's arrange our message today in terms of these two thoughts, warning and then encouragement. I read to you the encouragement passage from verses 32 through 39. But verses 25 to 31 in Hebrews chapter 10 is the warning passage. So what he's going to tell us is don't draw back. That's the warning passage. Verses 25 to 31, it's a warning against apostasy. Instead, draw closer. That's verses 32 to 39. That's the encouragement passage. He encourages us to keep on keeping on, to be committed, to redouble our devotion to Christ, to draw nearer to God. Now this warning, don't draw back, was especially appropriate to the Hebrews again. Many of them 
were under pressure. You know, they lived in a Jewish community. They had confessed Christ. They had believed that Jesus was the anticipated Messiah, and they had embraced him by faith and joined or united to the church. And the apostles paints the scene here that because they were still living in a Jewish community, some of them worked for Jewish employers. Some of them had fathers and mothers who were still going to synagogue. They were seen as traitors or Benedict Arnold's. They had left this religion that was rich in tradition. 1,500 years, the Jews had kept the law, and these people had thrown it aside in favor of what is called the church, the local assembly. And the apostle knows that they're under pressure, and some of them had come to the conclusion again that it just wasn't worth it. The pressure was too great, and they were going back to the synagogue, back to the law, and the apostle warns them in Hebrews that to leave the superior light of the gospel for the inferior light of the law is tantamount to a presumptuous sin, to a sin against the light of knowledge. You're walking away from the sun for the purpose of embracing the moon. You know, obviously the moon has no light of its own. It's reflected light from the sun, right? The sun is the source of warmth and light, but the moon is a reminder of the source of light, but it doesn't give any light of its own. And they were leaving the sun of the new covenant for the moon, if I could say it like that, of the law. And the apostle warns them that that is a very serious matter. So don't fall away. The word forsake in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, is the same word translated in 2 Timothy 4.10 when it says demoths hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. The Apostle Paul, in one of the saddest verses in the New Testament, talks about one man who fell away from the truth. He was an apostate. He forsook me, says Paul. He was once loyal, but now he has loved this present world. Fool's gold has captured his eye. When a child of grace falls away from the truth of the gospel for this present world, he's fallen for fool's gold. And we all know people who once sat on these pews who are not here anymore because their hearts grew cold, right? And that grieves us. I've been privileged to pastor three primitive Baptist churches during the 40 plus years I've tried to labor as an ordained minister of the gospel. And I have to tell you that in every case, there were people who once occupied the pews who for one reason or another just sort of drifted away. And it's always sad because they're part of us and it hurts to see them fall away. Well, that's why Paul is saddened by Demas's apostasy. He forsook the right way having loved this present world. And may I suggest that as the end nears, As the second coming of Jesus Christ gets closer and closer, the New Testament tells us that there will be a great falling away. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 12, says, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. That is, the more this world captures the attention of believers, the greater the potential for apostasy will be, because iniquity will abound the love of many. Jesus said, not the love of a few, but there will be a great falling away. That's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, in which he says, that day of Christ's coming shall not come except there be a great falling away first. 
and that man of sin be revealed to the son of perdition. He says that there will be an exodus, an apostasy, a falling away of believers from the church as the second coming nears. You know, the Hebrews were facing this on a small scale because of the pressure of persecution. And the apostle says there will be a larger scale of apostasy as the second coming of Jesus Christ nears. He mentions this fact again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. This is not something obscure and veiled, but it's clear and transparent. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. The Holy Spirit has plainly declared that that would happen. That's why this warning is so important for us this morning, my beloved, because it could happen to you, and it could happen to me. I've known preachers that once preached the gospel who are no longer active in ministry or even in the life of the church. I could start naming them. Over the past 40 years, I've known many men that I loved and once rejoiced under the sound of their preaching. I mean, I saw the hand of God upon their labors But because of a bad attitude or a false idea that they embraced or because of the influence of somebody that hurt their feelings and they had a spirit of unforgiveness and just couldn't get over it or because of the fool's gold of wealth, you know, I'm going to get rich. They became so enamored with this world that they just lost that loving feeling and they eventually divorced the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a heartbreaking experience, isn't it? That is a real threat to each of us as the end of time gets closer. So as this world gets worse and worse, and is it, I would ask you this morning, is this world getting more and more godless and anti-Christian? Absolutely. My friends, as evil prevails, as people no longer have a sound mind, as they've been turned over to a reprobate mind, I mean, the gender dysphoria and confusion and, you know, the sexual immorality that is paraded in front of us not only to tolerate but to approve and to affirm and accept. And you think about all of the diabolical deals that are done in the back corners that affect multitudes and the cheap view that many of the elites have for human life. My beloved, as you think about all of the things that are happening in this world, may I say the temptation for more and more of God's people to just fall away and leave the gospel of Christ, the work of the church, the kingdom of God is greater and greater than it's ever been. Therefore, this warning is vitally important. Now, what he's going to do in this warning passage in Hebrews 10, 25 to 31, first, he's going to talk about the seed of apostasy verse 25, and then the seriousness of apostasy, verses 26 to 31. Let's try to go through this with some kind of rapidity. Apostasy starts with the seed of absenteeism from the public assembly, verse 25. This was happening in the Hebrew community. The apostle says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Now that was already happening in that day. There were some people who were no longer attending public worship. 
And last time that we talked about this, I dealt with it on the positive side as we emphasized the benefits of worship with the church. You know, I could bang my fist on this rostrum and say, don't forsake the assembly. Or I could tell you that uh, there are benefits to being here that you won't get by being absent. And my beloved, one of the benefits is encouragement. You see that in verse 24 when he says, let us consider one another. Consideration of others means that there is an encouraging dynamic when the saints assemble together. I have to tell you, it does my heart good to see your faces, to be here. I'm in the midst of friends this morning, and I don't get a lot of encouragement in this world, to be honest with you. I'm trying to better adjust my thinking by turning off, you know, the news more regularly, but uh, the more I watch what's happening and the more I see the, just the vicious attitudes around us in this world, I have to tell you that it's not real encouraging, but I come in here and I hear you singing wonderful hymns of the faith, like I did this morning, and it just makes me sigh and say, I'm so glad to be here, because there's encouragement here. Consider one another. Now, my beloved, when we come together, we're coming into the presence of God, Right? Our purpose of public worship is to fellowship with God, to be mindful that he's present, to think about what he's done for us, to apply to him for help. You're coming to draw nigh to God. But you know, the fact is, none of us is a lone ranger. None of us is an island to himself. And we're not only enter into the presence of God when we come to public worship, but we enter into the presence of each other. Somebody says, I don't want to notice anybody around me. I just want to focus on the Lord. Well, the fact is, one of the reasons we mention people who have prayer requests and needs is because we're a community. We're a band of brothers, aren't we? The church is not a lone wolf kind of activity. It is a family affair. And it's interesting, John calls the believers in 3 John, people that he loves in the truth, he calls them the brethren. He said, I rejoice greatly when the brethren came, the brethren... What does that word signify? Brethren. It means that we're kin to each other, right? The brethren. That's more than just that we're members of the same club. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're the brethren. That's a family term, a filial term. Then he calls the believers the church in verse 6. He says, they've borne witness of thy charity before the church. That is the called out. That's what the church is. It's people who've been called out from this world to bind themselves with other like-minded believers in a covenant of commitment to Christ, the church. And then he calls them the friends. In verse 14, greet the friends by name. I like those three terms, the brethren, the church, and the friends. You know, I think about that hymn in our hymn book. You may sing of the beauty of mountain and dale. Now, I love nature, and it is beautiful, but, my beloved, there's something more beautiful. Of the silvery streamlet and flowers of the vale, I love mountain scenes and uh, rivers and meadows and flowers, but the place most delightful, says the hymn writer, this earth can afford, is the place of devotion, the house of the Lord. Can you say that? Listen to the next verse. You may boast of the sweetness of day's early dawn, Oh, I just love the morning. I love the quietness of the morning. Of the sky's softening graces when the day is just gone. I love not only dawn, but dusk. 
the sunset, the quietness of the evening, the birds singing. But he says, but there's no other season or time that can compare, this hymn writer says, with the house of devotion, the season of prayer. This is poetic language describing the beauty of public worship with the saints, right? You may value the friendships of youth and of age. I had a bunch of friends in high school, people I ran track with, played football with, you know, good buddies, good old boys. But I have to tell you, I haven't stayed in touch with them as much as I have with the people of God in the church over the years. You may value the friendships of youth and of age and select for my comrades the noble and sage. You say, I know this celebrity, I know this public official, but the friends that most cheer me, the hymn writer says, on life's rugged road are the friends of my master, the children of God. I wonder if this language touches a note in your heart this morning. You may talk of your prospects of fame and of wealth and the hopes that all flatter the favorites of health, but the hope of bright glory, of heavenly bliss, take away every other and give me but this. I like the way this man thinks, don't you? Ever hail, blessed temple, abode of my God, I will turn to thee often. That is, I will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. To hear from his word, I will walk to the altar with those that I love and delight in the prospects revealed from above. That, my friends, is the benefit of encouragement in the church. Notice the seed of apostasy, the seed of falling away, begins when we start missing. Public worship with the saints. And one reason we shouldn't miss is because we have a mutual responsibility to assist our brethren to be faithful. We are members of one another. Our lives are inseparably bound up with the brethren. So he's going to tell us here that worship with the church is the antidote to discouragement. There's another hymn that reads as follows. All you that in the flood have owned your holy Lord. What does that refer to? Think about it. All you that in the flood have owned your holy Lord. That's talking about baptism, right? You have gone through the waters of baptism, the flood. All you that in the flood have owned your holy Lord and to his people joined yourselves according to his word, in Zion you should dwell. Her altars ne'er forsake, should come to all her duties well and all her joys partake. We talked last time about Thomas. The day he missed church is the day Jesus showed up. <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be sad to miss church and have it recorded in the Bible for all posterity to know about? Because the day he missed, Jesus came. Now, mercifully, Jesus showed up the next week when Thomas was present. And Thomas embraced him and said, my Lord and my God. Talking about the church, this hymn writer says, she should employ your thoughts. What do you think about? What is the aim of your ambition? And your unceasing care. Her welfare should be your constant wish and her increase your prayer. In humbleness of mind, among her sons rejoice. A meek and quiet spirit is with God of highest price. Don't draw back, my friends, but draw close to the church because there's encouragement here. And when he says consider one another, he says consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, when we assemble here, I see your faces, and I'm not a perfect judge of what's going on in people's lives, but I can tell if somebody's burdened sometimes. 
I can tell if they're just troubled over something, their heart is heavy. You know, it's hard to hide our countenance, right? You know, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, says the wise man Solomon. But by sorrow of heart, the spirit is broken. And as we assemble together, we're not only here to worship God, but we're also here to try to be a blessing to each other. We're here to try to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. If I'm absent, I miss that opportunity, and instead of encouraging them, I may very well discourage them. So we need to gather together. The early church, the apostle says, needs to assemble together. It's not enough just to be a Christian on your own. In fact, it's impossible. Have you ever noticed that every teaching on discipleship, living the Christian life, is framed in the context of letters or epistles to actual churches in the New Testament. The best way to live the Christian life is as a part of the church. And I would encourage every one of you, those who are not baptized, I'm glad you attend our meetings, and I'm glad I see you as a part of the church in many respects, but I'm saying that you're missing the best part by refusing to follow Jesus Christ in gospel obedience. Oh, my beloved, own your Lord. Profess him publicly and Come into the house of God and to the membership of the body of Christ and get involved in supplying as every joint should to the upbuilding of the body so that Christ will be glorified in the church. Consider one another. You see, there's encouragement here. And consider to provoke. There are opportunities for ministry. Consider one another to provoke. Now you say, wait, Brother Mike, that's what I'm good at, provoking. <laughs> other people. I mean, you know, all I do is show up on the scene and people are angry and fussing and fighting. I can provoke people very quickly. Well, notice he doesn't say to provoke them to anger or to fussing and fighting, but he says to provoke them to love and to good works. The word provoke in this verse is paroxysm. And a paroxysm is a sudden convulsion, like sitting on a tack in a chair. <laughs> you ever sat down in a chair on maybe a thumbtack? What happened? Did you just sit there quietly for about 20 minutes and say, you know, this kind of hurts? No, do you know what you do? You have a sudden convulsion, like a seizure, right? A paroxysm of pain. It's an immediate response. He says, I want you to live in such a way that other people will be compelled spontaneously to good works and to acts of love. In other words, every believer should so live that fellow believers will be compelled to react in a spontaneous paroxysm of love and good works. Worship with the saints, my beloved, strengthens the brethren and gives us an opportunity for ministry. You know, the most amazing tree on planet Earth, in my opinion, is the redwood in California. California redwoods. Have you ever seen them? Some of you have, I'm sure, or seen pictures of them at least. You know, those redwoods grow up to 380 feet tall and spread out sometimes 16 to 20 feet in the branches. Huge, massive trees, aren't they? I mean, they're just, they look like they belong in the land of the giants. Redwoods, 380 feet tall. How deep do you think the root system would be to support a tree 380 foot high? Would you be surprised to learn that the roots of the redwood tree are usually about six feet deep? See, how in the world can a Redwood that tall and that massive with that much weight to be supported by roots that are only about six feet deep. 
And the answer to that question is because those roots, although they don't go very deep, they spread out to almost 100 cubic yards in each direction and intertwine with the roots of the other redwoods, which gives them support. And my friends, may I say that the strength of the redwood is in its connection to the redwoods beside it. And the strength of the Christian is in its intertwined life with the believers with whom we worship. You strengthen me. I hope I strengthen you. We need each other, my beloved. So consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works instead of provoking people to discouragement and despair and worldliness and sin, we should labor at realizing that we each have the potential to encourage other people to be more godly, to live closer to God. It's so vitally important, my beloved, that we remember that we're a part of a network. Public worship is not only the antidote for discouragement, but it's the remedy for confusion and disillusionment. I love the 73rd Psalm, the story of Asaph. Here's a man who began to look at the prosperity of the wicked around him, and he saw, comparatively speaking, his own struggles, and he said, it just doesn't seem that justice is being served. The scales don't balance. He said, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, I wonder if any of you have ever done that. You've looked around and you say, why do the wicked prosper? How can they get away with it? Why is truth always struggling, but yet evil seems to win the day? Why does wrong prevail while righteousness is teetering and tottering? Why is truth on the scaffold while wrong is on the throne? That's what was happening to Asaph in Psalm 73. And he said, as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. It sounds like he's standing on a banana peel. And he said, I'm losing my balance. He said, I know that God is good to his people, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For he said, there are no bands in their death. They are not in trouble like other men are. Their cattle do not cast their calves. And he said, the sun seems to shine on them. Lord, it just doesn't seem right. He said, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. That is, he's embroiled in an inward struggle, a period of inward turmoil. He said, I just can't figure it out. And he says, if I speak thus, if I verbalize what's going on in my heart, he said, I would be an occasion for somebody else to stumble and fall. I should offend against the generation of thy children. So he said, I don't want to be responsible for tripping somebody else up, so I'm just going to internalize it. I'm just going to contain it. But he said, I couldn't live with it. It was too painful for me. He feels to be very much alone. And he continued in this state until, says Psalm 73, 28, until he went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Then I understood. Then I understood their end. Notice his mind is confused until he goes to hear the word of God proclaimed. And suddenly it all makes sense. He gets the big picture again. He sees that justice will not sleep forever. That God will punish the wicked. That though they may seem to get by with it in this world, that ultimately speaking justice will be served. God's name will be vindicated and seeing the big picture, understanding the end of the story, helped me 
to deal with my own personal struggles. And that's why he ends Psalm 73 with these words, it is good for me to draw near to God. I want to tell you it's good for Mike Goins to draw near to God too, and I suspect it's good for you to get close to God as well, my beloved. I hope you're doing so this morning. You see, but this warning passage kind of concerns me, Brother Mike. It just seems a bit harsh. Oh, my friends, if we consider this passage in terms of all that the Lord's done for us, it's not harsh at all. It's actually very rational and reasonable. So why do we need to draw near with the church and not draw back? Because the church has so many benefits. It's an opportunity to minister to others. It's an opportunity to find clarity for confusion and disillusionment. And this passage also tells us that the primary way that we draw near to God is by assembling with his people in the church. It's the primary way. You can do so by prayer, but you also do so by public worship. Psalm 27.4 says one thing about desire to the Lord. Now, I would that each of us could come to that point where we're not spread out all over the place, but we have a single aim and ambition in life. One thing have I desire to the Lord. And that will I seek after. This is going to be my pursuit, my ambition, says the psalmist, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What does public worship give you the opportunity to do? To behold the beauty of Christ. That's a benefit in public worship of the saints that neither TV church, Zoom church, or Facebook church can satisfy. We need each other. We're a part of the community. And my beloved, may I say many Christians today need to be reminded of that in this age when many people have been influenced to stop attending public worship. Public worship serves to immunize the believer from spiritual decline and declension. James 4.8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now let's talk for a moment about the seriousness of apostasy. He says, brethren, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, that is, both warn and encourage. That's that same word. And so much the more. Notice the urgency of this matter. Brethren, encourage each other to be faithful in church attendance. Encourage each other to draw close to God and close to their brethren. And do that so much the more as you see the day approaching. And what is that day that's approaching? He may refer to Lord's Day morning, what we would call Sunday, church time. So on Monday afternoon, on Wednesday morning, on Friday evening, he says, exhort one another. Hope to see you at church Sunday, brother. I'm looking forward to worshiping with you, sister, this coming Lord's Day. Don't fail to do that as you see the day of public worship approaching. But also this passage probably means as you see the second coming of Christ approaching. As the end nears, we're living in precarious times. Brethren, it's more and more important for us to encourage each other to draw closer to the church as you see that day approaching. Now notice the seriousness of apostasy. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, and buckle your seatbelt because here we go. For if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, the word willfully means defiantly, just turning a blind eye. It's an I can do as I please attitude. 
Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. It's a presumptuous sin. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. What he's saying there is that when we step away from the fellowship of the church, we present ourselves as the enemy or adversary of the Lord. He that despised Moses' law, now notice the comparison. The person who despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the spirit of grace. He says if the punishment or penalty under the law was so severe, it's even worse under the gospel. Do you know why that's true? The reason that's true, my beloved, is because greater privileges require greater responsibilities. Luke 12, 48 says, Unto whom much is given, much is required. If God has blessed you with a great deal, he holds you to a higher standard. That's why there's greater punishment for leaving the superior light of the gospel than there was even under the law with despising the law. This is sobering language. It's kin to other apostolic warnings like 2 Peter 2.18, where Peter basically says the same thing. He says, after a person has escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end of that person is worse than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they've known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. John likewise says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, talking about apostates, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, my beloved, all of this language is designed to show us the seriousness of apostasy. And I want to issue a disclaimer right quickly. These warnings are not exceptions to the doctrine of eternal security. The Bible teaches that when a person is saved by grace, they are preserved by the grace of God. When he says that we might fall back into perdition, he's not saying that a person can be saved today and then lost tomorrow. I know that the people in this passage are born again people. I know that they are redeemed people. How do you know that, Brother Mike? Look at verse 29 when he speaks of the person who counts the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. Past tense, that's the aorist tense, means once and for all. This person was made holy once and for all by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was sanctified. That's not true ever of a, an unregenerate man. That's never true of a non-elect. This passage only applies to the people of God. My beloved, what he's saying is not that you can lose your salvation, but he's saying you can lose every blessing worth having this side of eternal bliss. And that is a serious loss. I don't want to lose the church. I don't want to lose the fellowship of the saints. I don't want to lose the love of the brethren. I don't want to lose the prayers of God's people. I don't want to lose the opportunity to hear and rejoice in the sound of the gospel. And you say, but Brother Goins, the pressure's so great out here. I'm being persecuted. Well, the apostle warns us about the danger of walking away, but he also encourages us 
about the resource that we have to persevere in the midst of it, and that is we draw closer to God and we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Oh, my beloved, may I say in this passage, we have a very sobering warning, but at the same time, an encouragement to persevere. I love the way that one of the early church quote-unquote fathers, Chrysostom, talked about this passage. He says, the author shows himself a skilled physician of the soul. The best physicians, after they've made a deep incision, do not go on to make a second, but they rather soothe the one that has been made with gentle remedies. And after he warns us about the danger of sinning willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, he encourages us, don't cast away your confidence which has great recompense of reward. You might be interested to know, and I'll just make this point as we close, that that is military language. Cast not away your confidence means don't throw your shield down in the middle of the battle. And that was a sign of surrender on the ancient battlefield. You know what the sign of surrender is today? If you're in a battle, how do you show that you want to surrender? You wave a what? A white flag, right? Okay, they're giving themselves up, white flag. In that day... The way a soldier said, I quit, right in the middle of the battle, is he took his shield and he threw it on the ground. He surrendered to the enemy. He cast away his, conf his shield of faith, his confidence. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great rec That shield will pay off in the end. It has great recompense reward. That is, it'll serve you better if you'll just hold on and hold out. Don't surrender in the middle of the battle. That's what he's saying. But you have need of patience. My beloved, that's true of you and you and you and you and me this morning. Let's forget this instant society in which we live, you know, add water and serve, 30-second infomercials. You know, somebody says, I want it and I want it now. You have to be patient. This is a long-distance race. Our commitment to Christ requires patience. Let us run with patience. This is a long-term endeavor. Therefore, don't get halfway through the marathon and say, I just can't do it. I just, it's just too hard. He says, don't cast away your confidence, which has great recompense reward, for you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise, and yet a little while he that shall come will come and will not tarry. That's encouragement, my beloved. So what we have in Hebrews 10 is the warning, don't draw back. But the encouragement, draw closer, nearer to God, nearer to thee, Lord. Draw me today. Jesus, keep me near the cross. That's what you need. That's what I need. My beloved, we need to live by faith. Jesus.